And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Monday, April 3rd, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, Congress is on a long recess, so nothing too bad can happen. Plus, NASA explores the future of an airspace filled with flying taxis and other stuff. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, you almost take it for granted it'll take months, probably years, to get through a background investigation for serving in government. People in the national security and defense apparatus want to cut that down to weeks, at least for most applicants. The White House has also set ambitious new timelines for personnel vetting. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday reports. Four years ago, at the height of the background investigation's backlog, it was taking the government more than 200 days on average to process a secret-level clearance. For top-secret clearance applications, more than 400 days. The new goals for clearing people applying to government positions, 25 days for a public trust position, 40 days for secret-level security clearance and high-risk public trust positions, and 75 days for top-secret clearance. As Senate Intelligence Committee Chairman Mark Warner puts it, This would be wild. 25, 40, and 75 days is the three categories. You get there, you'll never get any grief from me because it's so much shorter. Warner was speaking to Biden administration officials after they shared those new goals at a hearing last week on personnel vetting. The new targets are part of the Trusted Workforce 2.0 initiative that has already overhauled many aspects of the government's vetting processes. The Defense Counterintelligence and Security Agency has done away with the investigation's backlog and processing times are down sharply. Continuous vetting has replaced periodic reinvestigations for most people. But it still takes months for many initial applicants to be cleared, especially in the intelligence community. Lawmakers are concerned agencies and contractors are missing out on talented people who won't wait around for the lengthy vetting process. Senate Intelligence Committee Ranking Member Marco Rubio. Who can sit around for two or three years to wait to be hired, especially when we're competing with the private sector for some of this talent. Where I'm most interested in learning is how do we balance the need to bring in people you can trust and and understand who they are with the desire to do it quickly enough so that this is a viable option for people that want to come work here. And The latest government-wide numbers from the fourth quarter of fiscal 2022 show it took an average of 76 days to process an initial secret-level clearance application. For top-secret clearances, it took an average of 127 days. And the new goals are an even bigger stretch, considering agencies only track the fastest 90% of cases today. Jason Miller, the Deputy Director for Management at the White House Office of Management and Budget, says OMB is going to start measuring 100% of cases, even the worst outliers. The current system only measures the 90% fastest, so we have a huge tail that we're not even measuring. We're trying to measure everything so we can manage it and make sure that we're really driving transformative impact. The ambitious new timelines also wouldn't apply to most of the intelligence community. While DCSA handles clearance cases for 95% of government, intelligence agencies handle their own clearance investigations. They often have additional requirements, like a polygraph exam, that add even more time to the overall process. As part of the Fiscal 2023 National Defense Authorization Act, lawmakers directed intelligence agencies to set a goal of onboarding personnel in 180 days. Deputy Director of National Intelligence, Stacey Dixon. 
Our goal is to try to come as close to that as possible, given that we have additional steps required to get to the extra level of security clearance, as well as the polygraphs and the medical in some cases. Lawmakers also remain frustrated with reciprocity, which refers to the process for individuals who are already cleared to have their clearance accepted by another agency. Delays in granting reciprocity have made it harder for individuals to move in between positions in government and industry. Here's Maine Independent Angus King. If they have a top-secret clearance at the Department of Defense, why isn't that good enough for the CIA? Contractors for the intelligence community have pressed agencies to speed up reciprocity decisions. Dixon says agencies can grant clearance reciprocity for contractors in 90% of cases within five days. But 10% of cases present a challenge, she added, where one agency may require additional processes before granting access to a cleared individual. But Warner says it's oftentimes months for employees and contractors to move from one cleared intelligence position to another. My view is, belief is, we have a complete mishmash. And the lack of reciprocity, or even the kind of not knowing for sure if you're at DHS and you want to go to DOE and then you want to go to NRO, we've got a lot of work to do in this space. We can do this, we can protect the enterprise, and we can be much more efficient. Lawmakers also wondered whether the Defense Department and intelligence community could look to alternatives to the polygraph examination. A report published last year by the Intelligence and National Security Alliance found it can take up to 18 months to obtain a polygraph due to a shortage of examiners. Ronald Moultrie, Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence and Security, says DOD isn't planning to phase out the polygraph, but its National Center for Credibility Assessment is studying other options. It is the tool, the gold standard that we have right now. We have had a discussion within the Department of Defense as to whether or not new technologies might be augmentative to polygraphs. Is there something out there that would allow us to monitor some of the same things that a polygraph monitors? But those are in the very early stages of discussion. But we believe that looking at technology and being able to enhance any process is the way that we ought to go. Despite lingering questions about polygraphs, reciprocity delays, and other issues, senators on the Intelligence Committee applauded officials for the progress they've made in reducing personnel vetting timelines across government and for setting the ambitious new goals. But Warner says it's an issue that will continue to require high-level focus and attention, particularly in the intelligence community. We're losing great personnel because they just can't wait. Maybe I'm a little obsessed about this, but I think it's going to take a little bit of relentless obsession because it's easier to stick with the status quo. Justin Doubleday, Federal News Network. Check out Justin's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, NASA explores the future of an airspace filled with flying taxis. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Aviation is changing thanks to the emergence of new types of manned and unmanned aircraft. NASA's Advanced Air Mobility Mission seeks, in its words, to help emerging aviation markets operate safely. The program pulls in many public and private partners. And here with a flyover view, NASA's research and test pilot, Garrett Everson. Mr. Everson, good to have you with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Great to talk to you. And tell us about the Advanced Air Mobility Mission. What precisely is NASA doing here? Yeah, so we're working with with industry and and teams of NASA researchers to advance the state of advanced air mobility. So specifically, I'm the partner demo team technical lead within our national campaign. 
and I oversee a, a variety of tactical teams, each working with a different industry partner to advance certain subject areas that are very important to the state of advanced air mobility overall. So that's one component, and I have a counterpart that works on a program called Integration of Automated Systems, and that is working with uh, teams of NASA researchers and other federal partners to develop the automation algorithms that we'll use to provide high autonomy for these vehicles to navigate the highways and byways of the national airspace system. So that's largely what we do under the uh, under the national campaign. So in the uh, portfolio of teams that I work with, we work with one partner that's developing UAM, urban air mobility representative approaches to build those because they're quite a bit different than the uh, traditional or legacy approaches that, you know, a Southwest 737 would fly into Reagan National to build those, evaluate those and, and measure their performance across a variety of performance parameters. We have another part team that's working on detect and avoid that's making sure that highly autonomous vehicles can navigate the uh, highways and byways of the national airspace and provide strategic and, and tactical conflict avoidance with other air airborne aircraft that happen to be out there. Because if these are eventually unmanned and there's a high degree sure. of autonomy, we need to provide collision avoidance. That so whole idea of autonomy, that's an important distinction to make from remotely piloted. Because yes. it could be that if it's done right, autonomous would be even safer than remote piloting. It can be. It can be. The goal is to have them highly automated. And some of our partners have a vision where there's no pilot involved. Uh, and there you know, would be a uh, individual monitoring from a console in a remote station, but not so much piloting. The aircraft is making decisions on its own. And that is long-range type things. And then there's other aircraft that are highly automated with, with different control schemes and you know, collision avoidance packages to help uh, reduce the amount of training required and improve safety. So that's a major component of what we do. Autonomy is definitely a focus area across AAM within our industry and government partners and certainly within NASA. In fact, that's a major component of the inter- integration of automated systems team. And is one of the challenges the fact that what is considered under the advanced air mobility, these delivery packages or air taxis and this kind of thing, are an order of magnitude slower than, say, commercial jets and then you've got general aviation, which is sort of in between speed-wise and the differential and speed and capability. Is that one of the challenges here? Definitely. It's one of the challenges. So it's definitely a niche market to provide passenger transportation or package delivery from rural areas into urban environments or underserved markets into markets uh, that, that have typical aircraft. So these aircraft, as you noted, fly slower, and they also fly at a lower altitude. Plus, the vision is to have them highly automated. So how to develop the infrastructure and uh, whether it's vertiports, different routes through the national airspace to allow these aircraft go from point A to point B in a highly autonomous aircraft and having them be interoperable with the other aircraft that are out there. And one important point is is the you know energy state of energy density of the batteries. Uh, these aircraft don't have the ability to loiter for 45 minutes should Reagan National have a ground delay for whatever reason. So we need to make sure they can all get from point A to point B safely, go to an alternate, and measure the demand capacity from all the different places in a well-orchestrated sort of way. So I think if the vision were, all works out, you know, by the end of the decade, it'll be a well-choreographed system that works seamlessly. So we're a long sure. ways off for that, but that's what our goal is, is to work with industry partners and other government partners to develop that whole ecosystem and make it all work out. Because the vision of personal mobility and flying cars and helmets with helicopters on them and this and that and the other bubbles that take i mean that jetson type of idea goes back 60 75 years what is the basis for thinking that now it's a reality 
I think it's uh, we can make the electric aircraft, the distributed propulsion systems, uh, similar to what you see on the Jetsons. That's the analogy everyone likes to use, but it's developing the ecosystem. So that's what we're looking at. We're not looking at it just the vehicle and just the electric motors. So some NASA programs are focused on that particular area, but we're gonna, looking at the ecosystem as a whole. And that is what hasn't traditionally existed and the technology hasn't been available, but we're now starting to see that technology become available, whether it's the batteries, whether it's the collision avoidance sensor packages and all of the FAA surveillance radars that play into this whole system. There's a ton of moving parts. And we have some pretty detailed conversations with all of our partners to build that ecosystem, pull it all together in a sort of way that we can make the Jetsons become a reality. We're speaking with Garrett Everson. He's a partner demonstration lead for NASA's Advanced Air Mobility Mission National Campaign. He's also a research and test pilot and experienced flyer yourself. And Tell us about the programmatic aspects of this. Who are some of the federal partners in the air mobility mission? Absolutely. So we uh, a big one is the FAA. Uh, they're, they're tasked to oversee uh, the certification of these new aircraft. The criteria to certify them are, don't quite exist, so that's under their portfolio. But we are here to work with the FAA to do unique testing and leverage each other's processes to really advance the state of the in- industry. So. The FAA is one of them. We also work with the Department of Transportation. They have unique test setups and test ranges that we leverage and take advantage of. And another big one is the Department of Defense. Uh, we have a, a great relationship with certain DOD organizations. One is, uh, is is Agility Prime with the Air Force, where we're leveraging each other's test programs and test campaigns to, in a synergistic sort of way to achieve similar goals. Now, uh, they are looking at eVTOL type aircraft and AAM from a mill use case perspective, and we're looking at it from a civil use case perspective. So they're very eager to see if we can use these aircraft. They're extremely quiet. We get a small team of special ops personnel from point A to point B into an area and then out of an area seamlessly. And that clearly has uh, overlapping objectives with the civil use case, just going from point A to point B. So combining our research programs reduces the cost of the taxpayer and really, we think, will allow us to advance the state of the industry so much quicker. So in fact, we're we're slated to do some interesting testing with, with the Air Force at Edwards Air Force Base starting this fall, unmanned and then maybe even going manned. So we have some very exciting times ahead working with these strategic government partners. And on the industry side, I'm imagining that there is a almost like the equivalent of what's happening in electric cars. There is this burgeoning industry of startups Big trying time. to get into this. Absolutely. And yeah, many in Silicon Valley, a ton of, uh, of really brilliant people. That's one of the aspects that I love about this job is working with so many smart people that are just advancing this technology rapidly so fast that, you know, on the regulatory side, it can be hard to keep up. That's why we're partnering with DOD and the, and the FA and having our best experts come in and say, how do we make this become a reality? Um, but uh, yeah, definitely emerging technologies in terms of the uh, the sensor packages, the batteries, the the automation systems to make these aircraft fly seamlessly in an almost autonomous sort of way. So very cool stuff. And as you know, the nation looks at autonomy for ground vehicles, and that's not going that well, actually. It's much slower and much more complex than people, even their proponents envisioned. What about the challenges for really software in above ground in the air? Is that maybe closer to something we can understand and rely on, say, versus It's a work ground. in progress, absolutely. Yeah, that's a great point. The software has to be certified, validated, and verified, and go through a very rigorous process that the automotive industry typically doesn't do. It's tremendously expensive, and the stakes are so much higher in the air, obviously. So we want to make sure the software is well-vetted and it meets certain design criteria. So how do you take how the autonomous systems, neural nets, and complex software 
and that's been designed properly and then verify it and validate it. That's a, that's a very difficult task. And we're trying to wrap our arms around that right now, working with the FAA and industry, because that's where the industry is going. And we want to make sure we can do that well, but maintain high safety standards for aviation. So that that's the goal. And it's kind of a work in progress. And as a pilot yourself, and you have piloted the fastest and most advanced Navy fighters, as well as some slower types of planes and prop transports and so forth. What's your take on that whole idea of unmanned autonomous flight? Does it make you like worry or it doesn't make me worry i think it's a matter of getting the technology to the point where it works and you know it works seamlessly and we have the safety data to prove it but also working with the public for you know in terms of community acceptance making sure that this is safe and it's well vetted and the public is comfortable with it and community acceptance is actually a huge part of our program but for me that's what i find fascinating is is the tech that's going to get us to that point i know industry is tremendously interested in reducing the number of pilots maybe dropping three pilots down to two or even two down to one with a pilot in a remote station so we're not just going to suddenly go unmanned boom here we are what do you think of this um it's going to be a phased in approach but as a pilot, I think that is the future, and I really like the tech behind it. In fact, I was, as you know, as noted, I was a test pilot for the Navy flying F-14s and F-18s. Uh, in my first job getting out, I worked for a large defense contractor as a test pilot on an unmanned program designed to land a uh, unmanned aircraft on an aircraft carrier. And the Navy was very interested that in the time to integrate unmanned aircraft in the carrier environment. That's happening even as we speak. It is, yes. Still. Yes. So this was a technology demonstrator that I worked on, but now there's other aircraft that they're developing to be interoperable in the carrier environment, do shipboard landings and takeoffs and provide in-flight refueling and do other missions. So that's that's becoming a reality. But that's where the tech is going. And that's what I find fascinating. So it doesn't scare me, but I, I embrace it and want to see how we can do all of that to benefit the public. And it strikes me that NASA's advanced air mobility mission really doesn't have an endpoint because this could develop forever. Maybe it'll become air mobility mission because advanced will just be the routine, but I don't see an endpoint to a program like this. No, uh, and that's what's very cool about it. Um, it's just we, we see dates of you know the late 2020s, 2032 in our roadmap. So this isn't something such as we're just going to work with you know a contractor, build an electric vehicle, and make it fly from point A to point B, and we're done. Developing that whole ecosystem is going to be a build-up approach with certain phases to get to the point where you have this you know well-choreographed ecosystem that works seamlessly. That's years away. So just working with, you know, teams of our most brilliant people, whether it's industry or other government agencies, is what I find fascinating. But, yeah, it's a rare opportunity to participate in such a program that's going to do so much over a long period of time. Usually the spectrum, you know, in terms of the schedule is is a lot smaller, you know, six months maybe or, you know, a few years. In fact, in my prior life, when I did science missions for NASA as a test pilot, you know, we do a mission that would last a year or two and then that was it. So this is much different working over a decade to advance the state of the industry. So the day will come when the average American will have a pizza delivered by an autonomous vehicle, then step into one to fly to the airport and then go That's somewhere. That's the vision. Yep. Step into, and step into uh, an autonomous vehicle to get to the airport. And we have partners that are doing that right now, not on manned. They're manned, but uh, trying to provide passengers from different areas of, of Manhattan into the three surrounding airports at, at a reasonable cost. And that's the, a major factor. So how do we reduce the cost so that it's no more than a taxi fare or an Uber fare that you're kind of used to today? So we're not quite there yet, but but that's the vision. And who cares what's going on on the GW Parkway? Garrett Everson is a, <laughs> exactly. is a partner demonstration lead for NASA's Advanced Air Mobility Mission National Campaign. He's also a research and test pilot at NASA's Wallops Flight Facility. Thanks so much for joining me. 
You bet. Happy to be here. And thanks for the invitation to speak. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Fly the Federal Drive. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, lessons from one big agency on how to get out from under technical debt. But first, Congress is on a long recess, so nothing too bad can happen. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Not for lack of things to do is Congress on a two-week recess, but the first three months of the 118th Congress have produced some results of note. We'll get a quick review and a look at what's ahead from Bloomberg Government Deputy News Director Lauren Duggan. And Lauren, members might have been disappointed that they're not in session for the indictment of former President Donald Trump, because not that it's exactly a Congress's affair here, but it's the kind of thing both sides would have liked to weigh in on heavily, and some of them have. But anything Congress can actually do at this point? That remains to be seen. They had already left town last Thursday for this recess when the indictment news was breaking on Thursday night. But what we saw in the aftermath is from the top of the House, Speaker Kevin McCarthy saying that Congress would potentially investigate the indictment of the ex-president and Democrats saying that they'd probably keep their hands off of it. So I think there will be further discussion on the Hill even before they come back. Chairman certainly can weigh in from wherever they might be for the next couple of weeks. But I would especially think we'll hear from Jim Jordan, the chair of the Judiciary Committee, and James Comer, the chair of the Oversight Committee, because they've already been looking into this even when they were down in Orlando a couple of weeks ago when Trump had tweeted he might be arrested or indicted. They were already talking about what their potential role might be in investigating it. So they might not be able to stop it, but they can certainly ask questions and try and get Alvin Bragg, the DA from Manhattan, to to come down there and answer questions or answer questions by letter. So I think there's there will be a lot of discussion about this. I'm not sure what the action would be, though. And getting back to what they have done in the first three months as Congress, It's hard to point to anything as momentous as what happened in the end of the 117th Congress in terms of some big, huge bills worth trillions. But what would you say the 118th can look back at at least after three months and say, yeah, we did that? It's always going to be difficult when you have divided control. You have a Republican House, Democratic Senate. They're not going to see eye to eye on a lot. Both of those chambers have very narrow majorities, too. So that makes things difficult. But from the House perspective, they would certainly triumph their ability to pass an energy package last week that combines a lot of provisions that Republicans really want to combat the Biden administration, repeal some of the climate change provisions. They've also passed a, what they call the Parents' Bill of Rights that they say would give parents more right in education. Those are two big things I think they are happy to head into this recess talking about. Uh, on the Senate side, they passed a bill to repeal the Iraq war authorizations from three decades and two decades ago, trying to get those off the books. And, and they did that in a bipartisan fashion, which was pretty notable. In terms of what's actually made it into the statute books, what's become law, there aren't a lot of examples there. And frankly, there are things that Joe Biden may not have necessarily agreed with at first. One is to cancel D.C.'s crime law that they had passed to change some of the criminal code provisions. Another is to declassify COVID intelligence, which President Biden signed that as well. And um, he's on the verge of, when it gets to him, signing a piece of legislation that would end a COVID national emergency. So those might not have started off being things Biden wanted to do, but they're, they're things that'll be on the law books and are an example of what Congress got through. That Iraq authorization, that's almost like this generation's Gulf of Tonkin resolution. I guess in some sense. I mean, it's a thing that has 
kept the war going and, and has provided authority. Tim Kaine, who had really been pushing for that for a long time, and Todd Young, um, an Indiana Republican senator, together they have worked to try and get this done. Um, it doesn't affect the 2001 authorization, which was the one passed right after 9-11. Um, so there still is authority in place, even if this gets through. We'll be watching to see when the House comes back after this two-week recess, what the Foreign Affairs Committee and others do on this, because I think there's openness to passing this legislation, but maybe a different approach will be taken. But that that's a long time ago seeming debate that was you know, re-upped in recent weeks as we talked about Iraq again for, for the first time in a while in some cases. And you've got three senators that will be coming back after this cherry blossom era recess and together they have a combined age of about 225. And so some real experience and some not so much experience coming back. That's right. I mean, this has been one of the challenges for Senate Democrats is they've been without two of their members for quite a while. John Fetterman, who's receiving inpatient care for depression, and then Diane Feinstein, who had shingles back in California, has been then first in the hospital and then home. On the Republican side, it's been Mitch McConnell, the minority leader who has been unable to get to Capitol Hill because he fell and had a concussion and maybe a broken rib and had to deal with the convalescence from that. But it sounds like all three of them are in a good position to return, get the Senate back to 100 members, which makes the math closer to what they would like to see it. And one of the impacts of that Dianne Feinstein's absence has been the Judiciary Committee unable to approve more judicial nominees and get them to the floor, which, of course, is one of the top priorities for the Biden administration and Senate Democrats to get more judges through and confirmed. So it has affected the Senate's ability to do a few things, but they have been passing some legislation, even like the Iraq War Resolution or Congressional Review Act resolutions to cancel rules. So they have been busy in doing things, but some of the priorities they'd like to get through have had to been on the back burner for the last couple of weeks. We're speaking with Lauren Duggan, Deputy News Director at Bloomberg Government. And when they do get back, as you mentioned, some judge nominations, they'll get back to, what do they call it, the conveyor belt. (laughs) The other party is what calls what the other party is doing, you know, getting these judges through that way. And what about the Labor Department nominee, Julie Sue? She's due to get a hearing, nominated to replace Marty Walsh, who was Biden's first labor secretary and left to join the hockey players union. Um, So we'll see how her hearing goes and and how people line up for her. I'm sure she'll get tough questions because the Labor Department um, has it's reached in a number of places in the in the working world. So um, I'm, I'm sure that will be a top priority, though, to try and get somebody through and confirm to that department. Another nomination that has to be renominated now is for the Federal Aviation Administration after Phil Washington withdrew his nomination. They'll be looking to name somebody from the administration and then get through them through Congress as well, given all the attention that's on the FAA in recent months and the need to reauthorize the agency later this year. So that'll be another top priority. And Judge judges, judges is always something that Democrats are going to try and pursue. And a final question on Senator Tommy Tuberville of Alabama has got a issue with some of the military high level nominees. Yes, that's true. He's putting a hold on some flag officer nominations that he doesn't want to go through in protest of the Pentagon's policy on abortion travel for for service members. So he's using his prerogative as a senator to hold these up. He's made the point that Democrats could push these through if they wanted to, but it's a, a question of using floor time efficiently because you could set up cloture votes and then have confirmation votes on each of these nominees, but that can take days and really drag out the debate. So they're kind of in a little bit of a standoff here. We'll see what happens when they come back after this two-week recess, but I don't think he's necessarily going to budge right away because he does have 
a policy he'd like to see change, and he's using the leverage he has as a senator. Lauren Duggan is Deputy News Director at Bloomberg Government. Thanks so much. Thank you. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, lessons from one big agency on how to get out from under technical debt. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The Labor Department is well on its way of getting out from under its mounds of technical debt. That's a word for old, outdated information technology. The agency is far from finished, but the closing of dozens of data centers and moving dozens of applications to the cloud is reducing how much the department has to spend on legacy IT. For more, Federal News Network's Jason Miller spoke to Labor's Chief Information Officer, Gundeep Alawalia. Department of Labor is not unique in in the sense that we had a, a lot of legacy applications in the past. I think what we have done is over the last five years or so, we have slowly depleted that technical debt and moved a lot of our things to the cloud. By the way, we have also closed down more than 80 data centers, right? So we have only a handful of core data centers left and most of our presence is in the cloud. But you're correct, uh, Jason, some of our stuff is in, in, in uh, still stuck to the on-prem area. Uh, so what we've done is we've actually created a hybrid environment between AWS, Azure, as well as our data center to make sure that it is a seamless environment when data moves through any of these uh, uh, areas, right? So that that is a architecture that we have created that allows us to modernize in a seamless fashion that is transparent to the users, right? Because we don't want to tax the users with double data entry or going to different areas and, and th- things of that nature. So, so we've created an architecture that is, uh, that is seamless. Now, we've, we've, all new projects are in the cloud. We do cloud native at this point in time. But also it is important how we have been able to do it a little bit better and different than other uh, departments. It is all about resources at the end of the day. And we have deployed a multi-pronged approach to this. One, we have set up uh, under the Modernizing Government Technology Act, we have the Working Capital Fund, right, for IT, which allows us to have a little bit of flexibility. By the way, we are also one of the only uh, agencies where uh, most of IT is consolidated in the CIS shop, and uh, we are not a federated system anymore. Second flexibility is to continue to lobby Congress for uh, IT modernization, direct appropriations, which also we've been fortunate to get two-year appropriations. You know that one year is just not enough to plan enterprise pro- projects and, and, and make changes, right? The third resource that we have gone after is the TMF fund. We are one of the few departments who has three TMF awards at this point in time. One was for Office of Foreign Labor Certificate for H2A, H1B programs. Second one was on our data analytics to liberate data and expose it externally. And the third one now is on the permanent residency program that also is run uh, through Employment Training Administration. The fourth one I'm extremely proud of is uh, we are the only 24 CFO Act agency that has an expiring fund sweep authority 
for technology. Now, other departments have it for other programs, uh, but I'm not aware of other any other uh, department having it for IT. And we couple all of these resources. And I'm telling you, uh, Jason, we have made a significant dent in, in our technical debt, and we are on our way to help uh, because of all of this. The MGT Act and the idea of an, a working capital fund, uh, I think a lot of agencies keep trying to get congressional approval. You all were lucky enough or, or smart enough or skilled enough, whatever of, uh, adjective we want to use to get it. How much has that really played into this ability to retire some of, some of this legacy debt and maybe not have to do as much integration between legacy and new and really just focus on new? I think it is pivotal because I think the budgetary uh, cycles uh, have been very unpredictable, right? For many, many reasons. And for any given project, a large project, whether it's moving uh, to EIS, uh, modernizing your land man infrastructure, implementing 5G, upgrading your laptops, I mean, I can name it, uh, and your application base, which is the true mission application through which we deliver is a multi-year project. I mean, I have yet to see something that we can fix with it, uh, figure out within within a because these are aircraft carriers, and and to turn an aircraft carrier, it requires time, and the appropriation comes late to you in the year, and is a one-year appropriation. You have two months to spend it all. Right, that is where I think it has been so prolific to have the working capital fund, but also the. Uh, our IT model appropriation, our direct appropriation has been, we've requested to get two-year appropriation and we've had it for the last few years. And then this expiring funds authority also allows you to sweep and bring it into the working capital fund. And the no-year money aspect of it, even though we spend it in one or two years, but it allows you to properly plan. And then let's not forget the other side of this is we have to work with the business units to come up with requirements, do the testing on all of these things. And they're not sitting around, they're inspecting mines. They're keeping your 401k safe. So this is collateral additional duty for them to come and help us modernize their systems. So you are also hostage to that. The velocity is hostage to that interaction because they don't have indefinite time to come and sit with Gundeep and, 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 and work on all their systems. So that is why these are multi-year, you have to plan the velocity, you have to take a, a transformation only in, in the amounts that the two-inch pipe can take. And that is why a working capital fund has been so instrumental in driving that transformation at labor. I love that fact because that was my other question about that expiring fund suite for technology. It seems like those that get swept into the working capital fund, roughly speaking, I know every year is different. The money always is kind of fluid, but but how much roughly is are usually is usually in that working capital fund? Do you more than a million, less than ten million, any range? So we were capped at eighteen million for the first two years of that authority, Jason. We swept less than that because obviously it, we are only. Uh, we are not, whatever is expired, only that can be brought in, right? So we swept less than that. Uh, I don't have the exact numbers off the top of my head. Uh, but then Congress decided, looking at how we have deployed it and our success, Congress decided to double that authority, uh, that cap from 18 million to 36 million last year. I, I really think uh, that your success hopefully will be a model for others. And then Congress can kind of understand the benefits of, of giving folks, CIOs, if you will, some some greater authority that 
they've kind of already said yes to just haven't really said yes to if you will <laughs> they're still getting that's their heads my, around it that's my consulting gig jason exactly it's not a bad one i want to talk because as we continue down this path and you talk about cloud and getting you know cloud first and, and cloud ready there's a challenge that every cio faces which is this idea of the balance you have to deal with with operational risk compliance issues as well as the ability to make it easy to use and flexible what approach are you taking through your office to to strike that right balance between risk compliance and and usability so I think I think it's a, always a very hard balance, uh, right? Uh, hard, hard to strike balance in between all of these competing priorities, right? You have cybersecurity on one side, you have a lot of operational risks, and then uh, you want to modernize systems, you want to operate them with uh, 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 the legacy stuff at the same time. I think there are a few mechanisms that we have within uh, labor that that allow us to uh, maintain that that balance. Uh, one is uh, we have an enterprise uh, uh, risk management board that is run out of our CFO's shop, right? We have all the agency leaders, and we don't not only dis- discuss IT risks, but we uh, discuss program risks in that as well, because these are all competing for uh, resources uh, together, right? I mean, it's it's not they're all connected. The other mechanism is uh, we we at OCIO have a joint business planning meeting with every program area every quarter. Gandeep Alawalia is the Chief Information Officer at the Labor Department, speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Find more episodes of Ask the CIO. Sign up at federalnewsnetwork.com or wherever you get your podcasts. It's been a little more than three years since Congress created a dedicated military service to focus on space, Space Force. Lawmakers are wondering whether it's time to do the same thing for cybersecurity. The Defense Department hasn't yet taken a position on that question. Officials say they're still studying the topic of a military cyber force design. But as Federal News Network's Jared Serbu reports, some members of Congress are getting impatient. Lawmakers have asked DOD for its recommendations on whether there ought to be a separate military service just for cyber forces more than once. In the 2020 Defense Authorization Bill, Congress explicitly required the department to include an assessment of the costs, benefits, and value of setting up a separate cyber force in its 2022 Cyber Posture Review. But Congressman Mike Gallagher, the chairman of the House Armed Services Subcommittee on Cyber, Information Technologies, and Innovation, says DOD skipped that part of the assignment. I understand that where you stand depends on where you sit, but it's not the prerogative of the department to decide which part of the congressional mandate you get to comply with or, hey, we'll answer answer it in a different report at a different time. We wanted that assessment in the Cyber Posture Review. John Plum, the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Space Policy, who also serves as the department's principal cyber advisor, says DOD wasn't intentionally ignoring the law. He says officials are now exploring that same question in response to a separate mandate Congress issued in the 2023 defense bill. That provision told DOD to conduct a detailed study on its existing cyber mission forces, including which military services should contribute personnel to those forces, how they're currently trained, organized, and compensated, and, again, whether a separate service would make sense for cyber. We are working hard on answering that problem. It's been tested in the FY23 NDA as part of Section 1533 of the Force Generation Study. I've been involved in conversations with your uh, staff on making sure that that study 
it's going forward. I think it's a good study. I think it gives us enough time to look at, and I think it's really important. And one of the things that requires us to explore, among other options for forest generation, is uh, cyber service. But the department is already growing its cyber forces under the current organizational construct, where each of the existing military services contribute forces to their cyber component commands, each of which reports to U.S. Cyber Command. General Paul Nakasone, who leads U.S. Cybercom, says the command is in the middle of building 14 new cyber mission teams to complement the 133 teams it started with. The first part of it is greater capacity. Uh, We are on a road to have more teams to be able to do more missions. Secondly is clearly uh, being able to play to our strengths. What's our competitive advantage? Our competitive advantage is information. So being able to further uh, leverage artificial intelligence, machine learning. And the third piece is it's all about our partnerships. This is what we've learned. It's, it's not only the partnerships with the National Security Agency, but broadly, how do we partner with FBI and CISA? How do we look at a series of international partners that, that provide our nation greater capacity? And most importantly, perhaps, how do we partner with the private sector? This is what we've learned in Russia, Ukraine. The power of partnering with the private sector provides our nation a tremendous advantage that no other nation has. And Nakasone says the teams have already started proving out their new capabilities in new ways, including by using some of the new service-like authorities Congress has given to Cyber Command. Those include the ability to conduct its own acquisitions, direct cyber budgets, and conduct hunt-forward operations that try to defeat cyber threats before they affect networks in the U.S. The fact that authorities, policies, and capability come together in 18. We demonstrate that in the defense of the 2018 midterm elections. And then as you see everything afterwards, whether or not it was ransomware, whether or not it was uh, actions against other adversaries, whether or not it's election security, this is the key starting point. And one of the big things that uh, we were the beneficiaries was, was this committee's decision in the FY 2019 NDAA to call cyber a traditional military activity that allowed us to conduct operations like hunt forward operations. This is tremendously important. I think what you're also talking about is that the work isn't done. And so when you think about uh, cyber, we need to make sure that a simulation capability, much in the same way we have in other domains, is resident within cyber to to include and to reinforce the, the advances we've already made. But some members of Congress hold the view that if cyber really is its own warfighting domain, it deserves its own military service, just like the maritime, land, air, and space domains. Texas Congressman Pat Fallon. We're talking about cyber being the fastest growing domain. We, we need a leader for this because it's going to be the front lines of the next conflict. And when you think about the, how inexpensive it is relative to the potential impact and damage that cyber can do today, it, it kind of harkens for me, Billy Mitchell comes to mind. Uh, General Billy Mitchell, who rang the alarm in the 1920s about the importance of air. We can't fight the war today, we got to fight the war tomorrow and prepare for that. And when I look at Cybercom's mission statement, it includes, one, defend the Department of Defense Information Network. Two, strengthen the nation's ability to withstand and respond to cyber attacks. And then three, conduct full-spectrum cyber operations to assist combat commanders and the joint force. And that reads well on paper, but the third one is the one that concerns me because, you know, the Navy's going to be concerned about uh, the sea with a side of cyber and the Air Force, you know, air with a side of cyber and Army land side of cyber. I strongly feel that we should be creating a seventh branch and making cyber a cyber service. Nakasone says that's ultimately a decision for Congress, but there's already a strong precedent for the model Cybercom is using today, with service-like authorities concentrated in a combatant command. That would be U.S. Special Operations Command. Special Operations is not, in, not run by any sp- specific service yet. It is the elite service. 
uh, and capability that our nation has. That's what we have modeled ourselves at U.S. Cyber Command. This idea of having special and unique authorities that we're able to train and man and equip our force, an agility to maneuver. Uh, and I think that that's, a, from my pr uh, perspective of having uh, commanded now for five years, that's a really good uh, place where we're emulating towards and making sure that our focus is on doing operations against our adversaries and continuing to build our capability. But while Congress waits for an official DOD position on that front, Gallagher says the delay is part of a broader frustration lawmakers feel when it comes to how quickly the department has responded to the dozens of statutory changes and reporting requirements in the cyber arena over the past several years. Another example, he says, is a requirement in the 2023 NDAA that requires DOD to create the new position of Assistant Secretary of Defense for Cyber Policy. Before it implements the change, the department has decided to hire a federally funded research and development corporation to study exactly what roles and responsibilities the office should have and how it should operate. That report isn't expected until September, so the White House wouldn't appoint a new official to lead that cyber policy office until sometime after that. Gallagher told Plum that timeline is disappointing. We sat down a few weeks ago and you talked about just the, the number of reports that have, are foisted on you by Congress. On one level, I, I agree. I think we, we insert far too many reporting requirements into the NDAA and, and it just sort of grows and grows without sort of cleaning out uh, the number of reports that don't actually get read. On the other hand, we do it to draw attention to significant issues that we think are important without actually having to micromanage the department with statutory language. And the best way to avoid reports is to provide us quick but comprehensive answers to the questions that we're asking the department. There's got to be a better way we can get answers to these questions. And I'm happy to work with you and your team uh, to come up with that. Uh, solution, because the current posture, in, in my view, is unacceptable. According to Gallagher, at the moment, DOD is delinquent on 15 separate statutorily required reports dealing with cyber issues. Jared Serbu, Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Check out Jared's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin. 